Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Joe Hubbard's Bible study entitled Love Never Fails. Joe is an ordained minister with the Churches of Christ in Australia and has experience in the community development and not-for-profit sector. This is the first session of Joe's Bible study entitled Love Beyond Need. Well, we, as Martin said, we're going to talk about love. Um, Martin Luther King calls love the most durable power in the world, the most potent instrument available in mankind's quest for peace and security. The great military leaders of the past have gone and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes. But the empire of Jesus, built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love, is still growing. So as Martin said, this conference is all about love, loving God, loving our neighbour, loving our enemy. And I think that this title summarises both the greatest asset but also the greatest challenge of the message of Jesus. It all comes down to love and that is at once the most simple and the most difficult thing to set our minds to do. Just to love is simply the most significant, enjoyable, beautiful and difficult thing we will ever learn to do. And as Christians, it is the single task that we must dedicate the rest of our earthly lives to mastering, just to love. It all comes down to one thing, loving one another. It's as simple and as difficult as that. That's all it comes down to. And love is the most simple and the most complex thing in the world, the hardest thing about the gospel. And the difficulty with love is that the things that get in the way of love for us are often subtle, they're often complex, they're often the things that are closest to us like comfort and security and protecting our family. So the things that get in the way of love often come in the guise of love. So love gets in the way of love. Love the most simple and complex thing. So this weekend I'd like to look at, I'd like to spend the three Bible studies I'm gonna do to look at some of the stories in the gospel in which Jesus illustrates some of the greatest hurdles that we'll face when it comes to mastering wholehearted love. And so the three things that I've, the three things I've titled that as how that we can love beyond need, how we can love both our own need and um, other people's need, how we can get past cultural, religious and personal boundaries in order to love wholeheartedly, and finally how we can love beyond fear. Because in truth, one of the biggest challenges to our love has already happened to us by the time we've gone off to kindergarten. By the time our four or five-year-old selves have trotted off to primary school, we've already learned that the world is a fearful and unpredictable place. And we've, by the time we've trotted off to primary school, we've already learned self-protective behaviours in order to survive in that scary and unpredictable place this world is. We learn that to love in a fearful and unpredictable place is to make ourselves vulnerable to being hurt and wrecked by that scary and unpredictable place. 
But then as Christians, we encounter the story, story of Jesus. And that collides head on with everything we've learned about protecting ourselves, with everything we've learned about protecting ourselves through keeping power, through boundaries and through fear. The story of Jesus shows us the way of, that the way of God is precisely one of love and vulnerability and opening ourselves up to being wrecked by that fearful and unpredictable world that we've learned to protect ourselves from. But I think, for me at least, no matter how much I intellectually believe that, no matter how much I accept that that is true intellectually, no matter how much I accept that that is indeed the base message of the gospel, those lessons that I've already learned by the time I've reached primary school, the lessons that I've already learned culturally, pre-consciously, are super hard to unlearn. Which is why I think these three gospel stories that I want to share with you over this weekend are really significant stories that we need to read over and over again as a therapy, if you like, against the culture in which we find ourselves immersed that says, play it safe, protect yourself, this world is scary. That's what the gospel is in so many ways and so many, but particularly when it comes to learning to love. It's a therapy against all of those protective messages that our culture will tell us to look after yourself first, to put yourself first, to put your own safety in that of those who are close to you first. As Christians, we face daily with things that threaten to stop us from moving towards that place of wholehearted love. Things that can bring out our most stubborn natures, choices that offer us an easier way, a pleasant way. And most of these are seemingly innocent scenarios and they won't be as dramatic as the story I'm about to share with you today. But the things that they promise are the same. They promise things that are important to us as well. They promise security, they promise safety, they promise comfort. So Matthew shares with us this well-known story. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, and also you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said, but I have kept all of these, what still do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many, many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, Well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. So here we have the story of a rich young man who finds himself facing a hurdle that threatens to snare him. Jesus tells him, you must let go of everything you have. But like a monkey with its hand stuck in a jar, the man is unwilling or unable to let go of his possessions so he can free himself to join the kingdom movement. And most of us go away from this story and we feel a little bit sorry for this guy. I mean, it seems a little bit unreasonable for Jesus to ask him to sell absolutely everything. Really? No, thank you. 
And we also go away, well I do, go away from this story, secretly hoping that at some stage in the years before this man dies, and he's young, we're told, so he probably has a few more years left in his life, we're hoping that he changes his mind. So in the end, when he dies, he goes to heaven. And I would say that's one hurdle for us right there. Because this story, when Jesus tells us, isn't about what happens when we die. And by this story, I mean our lives. Our lives are not about what happens when we die. When the rich young man comes to Jesus and asks his question, he wasn't actually asking about who goes to heaven when he dies. That's not what the kingdom of heaven means here. It's not what it meant for the Jews of Jesus' day, and it doesn't mean that today. The rich young man believed what all good Jews of his day believed, and that was that God's sovereign and saving rule was going to break into the here and now and transform everything in the here and now. In other words, the rich young man believed what all Jews of his day believed, and that is that the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. So first thing, the man's question wasn't about where will I go when I die, but about who will be a part of the kingdom of God when that kingdom of God happens on earth. And there are a lot of Jewish leaders of Jesus' day who were speculating about that question. And they all had their answers. And of course, the standard answer of who will be a part of that kingdom when the kingdom is established on earth will be those who keep the rules, those who keep all of the Jewish law. But most of the teachers, there were a lot of wandering teachers around Jesus' day who were very much like Jesus, going around and teaching. And they all seemed to have a bit of bonus material that they give their disciples. So they'd have a bit of extra information about who would be a part of that kingdom. And so this rich young man comes across as someone who's going around to all of the teachers and covering all of his bases. He's just making sure he's collecting all of the bonus material so that when that kingdom comes on earth, he'll have ticked off on all of the boxes. And because Jesus is the respected teacher of the day, he's looking for his bonus material as well, just to be on the safe side. And so he's pretty disappointed in Jesus' first answer because Jesus gives just a summary of the basic, the very basic Jewish law. So the basic commandments, commandments five to nine, and then he throws in just a really popular Jewish summary of those laws, love your neighbour as yourself. He says it all comes down to wholehearted love of your neighbour. I think it's quite interesting in this passage that Jesus at this point deliberately doesn't mention commandment number 10. You know, the one about wanting more stuff than your neighbour. Just leaves that one out for now. Gives the guy a little bit of an out. But he pushes him further, doesn't he? The rich young man isn't satisfied with this standard answer. He's like, I already know that. I'm looking for the bonus material. What else do I need to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? Now, Jesus has just said, that all of the commandments come down to wholehearted love. And then the guy says, what else? Like I said at the start, that's the most difficult thing about this wholehearted love thing. The answer is simple. Love your neighbour. That's it. The answer is simple. We complicate it. And we complicate it by letting the small, insignificant stuff get in the way of the important work. And the important stuff always comes down to two things only. Love God and love your neighbour. I was recently at a conference um, of a denomination who will go unnamed at this point in South Australia. 
and the um, head of that denomination got up and he said, well, as we've heard today, as we all know, it all comes down to two things. And I said, yes, amen. And he said, it comes down to prayer and evangelism. And I said, no, take back that amen. It comes down to love God, love your neighbour. That's it. It's as simple and as difficult as this. So today, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and hopefully if we have the time at the end, we'll have a little bit of a chat about this among ourselves. So the first question I want to ask that I want us to think about together is, what stuff is getting in the way of wholehearted love of my neighbour? What stuff am I letting get in the way? What small stuff, arguments, disagreements, fear, am I letting get in the way of total love of my neighbour? Because this barrier that was facing this first century rich young man is just as present today as it was in the first century. Many, I would argue that pretty much all of our moral and theological debates in our churches today seem to fit into a similar category to the rich young man's question. But what else? Yes, I know it comes down to loving my neighbour, but what else? We also want the bonus material, the extra rules to make us safe. We know it's all about loving God. We know it's all about loving our neighbour, but what else? What else is about? That's it. Just do it. Loving God and loving your neighbour is hard enough. But that's the problem. It's really hard. Rules are easier. Rules are safer. But God is not about safer. The rich young man here is trying to justify love without sacrifice. Love without personal risk. Relationship with God, but with safety nets. And as I said at the top, We've all learnt deeply that this world is a fearful and unpredictable place and to love without a safety net in a scary and unpredictable place is a dangerous thing to do. And so this question that the rich young man is asking, this desire for rules and safety nets and for clarification is just as tempting for us as it was for him. We ask the same self-justifying questions all the time. With the rich young man, I claim, I want to be obedient to God, but his commandments can be ambiguous. Does this passage mean this or that? Specifically, how should I love my neighbour who sins differently from me? And Jesus' answer rings through the century. Wholeheartedly. Jesus articulates to the rich man, all the laws and the prophets have one single purpose, can be condensed into one single framework. They demand single-hearted love of God and wholehearted love of our neighbour. Love God, love your neighbour. It's as simple and as difficult as that. But you see, the richer we are, the harder that commandment for wholehearted love of our neighbour is. And I want to look at why that is today. Jesus says, in fact, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've heard a few sermons on this passage and most have tried to justify that crazy passage about a camel and a needle with some sort of simpler explanation. There must be something more to it. After all, what has a camel got to do with a needle? The two things aren't normally in the same package. Well, it's possible there was a gate in Israel called the needle's eye in which a camel could fit, but only if you were to take everything off its back first. And that has a certain poetry to it because it kind of insinuates that this rich man could discover eternal life if he took off all his possessions. Another argument is that the word camel is actually very similar to a type of rope in the first century. 
And so the image was actually one of a huge sailor's rope trying to pass through a seamstress's needle. I don't know. I just like the original camel and needle. Because to me, the element of the ridiculous of a literal camel and a literal needle actually fits much closer to the other examples that Jesus taught. Almost humorous exaggeration, like throwing a hugely expensive party over finding one lost coin. That sounds like Jesus to me. And it was meant to cause a shock reaction, and it did. The response of the disciples was greatly astounded. Who then can, we be, can be saved? If that was talking about a camel passing through a gate and it actually happened every day, I don't think the, the disciples would be hugely astounded. But the shock from the disciples didn't just come from the crazy analogy, but also from the fact that Jesus had just turned the way of the world upside down to suggest that this popular and well-known Jew wasn't going to be a part of the kingdom was the social equivalent of suggesting that C.S. Lewis's salvation was in question. The disciples had been sucked in with the rest of society and taken it for granted that if God was making a kingdom for Israel, then those who were important in Israel would certainly be guaranteed a place in it. And wealth meant important, just as it often does today. The rich man had many possessions. He was probably very well known. There weren't many rich people in Jesus' day. But Jesus says, no, that's not what my kingdom is built on. The key to my kingdom is love. The rich man's wealth put him out of touch with the people who needed his love. It sheltered him just as wealth often does today. Today, even today, you can see people bending over backwards to try and climb the, the uh, career or the social ladder by befriending people who can influence them. And we today tend to look at that fairly with, with big frowns on our faces. But in Jesus' day, that was the only way you could actually get anywhere. There was a fourth century Mediterranean proverb that said, every rich person is either a thief or an heir of a thief. Because that's the only way. You could either inherit wealth or you could get wealthy by dishonest deeds. That's how you've got wealthy. Some might argue that's still how you get wealthy today. The rich man could afford to keep his distance from those beneath him because they'd be trying to use him to climb the social ladder. He could pick and choose his friends, thus his wealth separated him from his neighbours. He had no need to get down in the dirt and engage with anyone, less, even less the less savoury elements of society. It was easy for him just to be friends with people who, were, who appealed to him, who it was easy to be friends with. And isn't that true today as well? But love, wholehearted love, requires us to get down in the dirt, to get up close, to get engaged, and to befriend the friendless, to befriend those who it is not easy to be friends with. And you can't really show deep, personal, vulnerable love to someone from a distance. The story of the Gospels, the story of Jesus, is of God who got up close, who got personal to show us the love that God had for us. If your church wants to be a restoring community after Jesus' own example, then you need to get down in the dirt and get engaged. So my second question is, what's standing in the way of our communities getting down in the dirt, getting up close and personal and engaged with our communities? What could be getting in the way? I want to give you an example of how a church can care for people without getting down in the dirt. 
I've visited a number of churches <clears throat> with soup kitchens in the last couple of years that have looked a lot like trying to love people without getting down into the dirt. Now they've certainly been providing for a need by serving a hot meal to unfortunate men and women who are colouring outside the lines of life. But when that meal is provided from behind a counter, ladled out by well-washed, well-manicured volunteers with the safety of a bench between them and the great unwashed, it's not quite up close and it's not very personal. Now I've never met any sort of malicious badness in these soup kitchens. On almost every occasion, the well-meaning volunteers have spoken kindly to the people whose needs are being met. They've asked their names, they've asked how they are, but the long and short of it is there's still been a very clear line between those who have and those who have need. And at the end of the day, these lovely volunteers have gone home to their safe, clean, warm homes, had a shower, climbed into a warm bed. Sorry to say that to surrender right now when you're probably all thinking that sounds incredibly tempting. You can all feel good about yourselves right now for not. And they've all felt a lot better for themselves because of that good deed that they've done. And they've done their good deed for the day. Someone is less hungry or less financially better off for what they've done. But it feels good, it's sexy, and it's love through need. After conducting what I like to call sexy volunteering, I'm left feeling really good about myself. I feel uplifted. Perhaps my, even my life is changed. Perhaps I can post a, post a really nice photo of myself on Instagram or of the meal I served. But what about the man on the other side of the soup ladle? Have you ever considered how it must have feel to attend a soup kitchen from that side of the bench? Does that experience leave you feeling sexy and uplifted? Does he Instagram his meal to tell his friends what he's been doing tonight? His belly is warmer, but does he feel better about himself? Is his life more abundant than before? Quite possibly it's the exact opposite. He's been put more fully in his place as a result of this encounter. He knows where the power lies. He doesn't feel like my equal or my friend as a result of that encounter. Now I don't want to give the wrong message because feeding, message, feeding bellies is really important. But I want to look at what it might look like for us to feed bellies in a way that still gets down in the dirt. And the good news is I've also visited a number of kitchens that have not been, that have got the good parts of this caring for people who are less fortunate than myself, rather than creating this divide. Places where everyone contributes. Tasty two-course meals served up proper crockery and cutlery, often cooked by the very same people who sit at the tables. Spread the tablecloths, the same people put flowers on the table. The same people cook the meal together, eat the meal together, share their skills together, and contribute whatever they can to cover the cost of the meal without knowing what anyone else is contributing. I helped with the logistics of one of this meal, and I knew the program was succeeding when I rocked up one day and was looking around to see if anything needed to be done, when one of the relatively new participants came up to me and said, is this your first time at the meal? You're welcome to come and sit with us if you like. 
They don't, these people don't see themselves as attending a soup kitchen. They don't see themselves as people in need. They might even be tempted to Instagram their meals for their friends, to show what they have prepared, to show what they have served. Now, one thing I can promise you, though, is this is a lot harder to organise than a soup kitchen. It's a lot messier <clears throat> because it breaks down the power control. If I'm not in control of what's going to happen tonight, then who knows where this might lead? But who knows where this might lead? To truly show love, we need to break down power controls because power control breeds imbalance. While there are power imbalances, there is not wholehearted love. One thing that plays on my mind a lot when I'm engaged with any program that is aimed at people who are suffering from any level of disadvantage is what a powerful position we find ourselves in when we set out to care for the poor. When we want to care for people who are poor, who are less fortunate, but we don't want their need to impact or disrupt our own security. In fact, often their need deepens our appreciation for our insecurity. How fortunate am I, we think, not to be in their situation? Or perhaps worse still, how blessed am I? To live in Australia, to have a stable home, blessed. Who did Jesus say was blessed? Those who have it together, those from stable homes. Jesus said, the blessed ones are the poor, the grieving, the marginalised ones. We've got it upside down again. And in our upside down world, we who have give to those who have not. And what we have and what they have not is power. Power to do something about their need, power to change their situation. Power, I would argue, is this possibly the single number one thing that gets in the way of wholehearted love of God and of our neighbour. And the seemingly benign hurdle that faces us here is need. But these people have need. How do we love beyond need? My third question. This question, for this reason, I think, the possibly the most powerful statement that Jesus ever makes in the Gospels is when he says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a master does not confide in his servants. Now I call you friends. That is the God of the universe breaking down the biggest power imbalance of all time for the sake of love. Can I say right now that Jesus has not asked us to meet the needs of the poor. Jesus has commanded us to love our neighbour. And perhaps the greatest statement we could ever make to our communities is, we no longer want to meet your need we want to call you friends. And of course, it's not possible to see our neighbour, our friend, who we love, in need and not want to support them, overcome that need, but we have these things so often in the wrong order. Friend before need. Love before need. Horse before cart. Right? Power imbalances lead to disempowered people 
constant power imbalances lead to aid culture, welfare culture, people in hyper with hyper-developed hyper senses of entitlement as a defence against the constant ego bruising of being the ones provided for. But the good news is there are alternatives and a scriptural basis for those alternatives. And that's why I want to look at the passages that I want to look at over these three days and why I want to ask these questions so that we can wrestle with how we can stop going about trying to care for the poor and start working out what it means to love our neighbours. So one thing I want to suggest is that if we want the wholehearted love of our neighbour, we must be aware of all of it in all our relationships, in all our services, of the imbalance created by power, control and need. We have taught ourselves to how to survive in this scary and dangerous place by avoiding unnecessary risk. But now in the face of the gospel, we must relearn <coughs> risk for the sake of wholehearted love. In this passage, Jesus isn't trying to give us a moral obligation or a justification or even a mandate to care for poor people. Rather, he's trying to give us an exaggerated example of the kind of love that it takes to be a disciple, the kind of love that his father lavishes on humanity, the kind of love that risks far more than could be required or expected. The story of the rich young man is in some ways more poignant today than it was then because it's harder to relate to. Living in a middle-class society, in a bracket of wealth that didn't really even exist in Jesus' day, in fact, hardly exist in my grandmother's day, it can be really hard for us to relate either to Jesus or to the rich young man because we don't fit into either category. This story is told from a place so foreign from our views of wealth, of ownership and individuality. There is a temptation set before us that tells us that we can have whatever we like, whatever life we choose, without it impacting on anyone else. If I don't see my neighbour living in a cardboard box, if I'm not friends of my neighbour living in a cardboard box, then I don't have to ask myself the question, what loving him as my neighbour means. But here's the part you've all been waiting for. Ready for it? Okay. Every time I've heard this passage preached, the preacher has been sure to give us the assurance that while Jesus did command the rich young man to give up all of his possessions, we can be assured that this is not a universal command, okay? Not all Christians are required to give up all their possessions. And it's true. As I've hinted already, I hope, as I've made blatantly clear, this passage is not about giving up possessions, it's about love. Wholehearted love of God and of people. But while that's a true statement, I just don't think it's a very helpful one. Or as theologian Donald Gundry once said, that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell their possessions, only comforts the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Because in truth, this has got nothing about money. It's all to do with love. So perhaps you felt a sigh of relief when I reminded you that Jesus did not command all of us to sell our possessions. In which case, that probably is a hurdle for you. Perhaps it's a matter of power and control or need you thought you were offering love, perhaps you were keeping people in their place. Perhaps we have allowed some small issue of theology or something else to get in the way of wholehearted love of your neighbour. Perhaps you have allowed the love of Western society to let you think that neighbour is the only, only the person you can see right in front of your eyes. Perhaps there is something else getting in the way of single-hearted love of God 
and wholehearted love of all people. Something else you're placing your trust in, your hope in, your reliance on instead of God. Something you hope will bring security to your life. Something you are hoping will bring stability to your life. Something you are hoping will bring freedom or happiness that isn't God. Jesus says to us, if you wish to be perfect, go. Get rid of those things you love, that you rely on, that you hope will bring you freedom and security and stability. Sell them, get rid of them, sacrifice them, whatever it takes. Then come, follow me and be part of my kingdom of wholehearted love, of hope, of restoration and of abundant life. Don't be like the rich young man. If God has spoken something to you about where your riches are, of what you are relying on for security or freedom, see this as an opportunity for true freedom, real freedom, eternal and abundant life. As you come to trust the God who can provide you with all you need and more and above, let us pray. Prompt us, Holy Spirit, to see those parts of our life where we are trusting in something other than you for our security. Draw us, Heavenly Father, into deeper, single-hearted union with you to bring into our lives hope, restoration, healing and wholeness and guide us, Lord Jesus Christ, into a deeper and more wholehearted love of our neighbour. Amen. All right, so in those moments you want to spend now, I'd love for you to be able to chat with one another around these two questions. For those who can't read them, what stuff is getting in our way of wholehearted love and how do we love beyond need? So we're going to chat with the people around you about that and if anyone has any profound insights, um, in about 10 minutes we'll have a, um, a year of those.
So you are sharing some of the challenges that you've been with and been through and maybe not even necessarily come fully out the other side with another family. So the idea is not that you have it together and you are helping another family to get it together, but that you are still journeying with this. And maybe you're a step along the journey, um, further along the journey, but you're still journeying that same challenge and same struggle with another family. And I thought that model was much, um, you know, much the power struggle is beginning to be broken down in that. But we wanted to take that another level of Baptist care. And we've developed a program called the Informed Friend, which is trying to help people who are, um, have a mental illness um, and people in churches come together. But in order to break down the power struggle, one of the things we wanted to do was for the people who are struggling, so the people who are coming from the churches who aren't necessarily struggling with mental ill health are then informed a lot about some of the challenges of um, mental illness. But the people who are living in the community with mental illness are then teaching the people in the church something that the people in the church want to learn. So whether that is one of them, I know one of the couples is learning golf, one of the other couples is learning Persian cooking. So, but the onus is that the person who is having the challenge in the community is the teacher, not the person in the... So they're coming along and it's about developing a friendship, not about... Develop, so we've deliberately tried to take the word mentoring right out of the equation for the very idea that, you know, let's see if we can break down so there's not a you have and I have not, but we actually both have, but what we have is different. This is one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 16. We hope you found this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. Please check in with us at surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to engage and connect with our wider movement.